Blog Talk Radio. Welcome, Truth Seekers. You're listening to A Measure of Truth on blogtalkradio.com, and I'm your host, Michael Fordham. If you just click the link on my webpage or you're listening on blogtalkradio.com or even the Blog Talk Radio player on my Facebook page and you want to call in live, look, we'd love to talk with you. So give us a call. The number is 347-326-9470. Oh, need a minute to get something to write with? But don't worry, I'll give the number again right after the commentary. Or if you like, you can Twitter me your questions and comments at twitter.com slash a measure of truth. Also, if you haven't yet, why don't you look me up on Facebook? I'm the Michael Fordham with a photo of me in studio, and you can always email me your questions and comments at a measure of truth at gmail.com. Look, we got a great show for you today. We'll be right back after this. It seems that the truth has somehow lost its appeal. In today's society, what really can we say is the truth? Most of what we hear from news sources, whether they're TV, radio, newspapers, magazines, and the Internet, have been crafted with only one goal in mind, to sell more publications, to get higher ratings, and grab the attention of more and more consumers. We as consumers have been corralled, misled, polluted, and confused by the media hype and spin doctor machine until we're too exhausted and overwhelmed by the rhetoric and minutia to have the real focused attention needed to analyze the facts when the truth finally does come to light. 
the story that could be has become so enticing to the media conglomerates that the real story and the great story no longer resemble one another. A measure of truth attempts to expose the underlying truth of news stories that you all have heard before, but gives you first-hand accounts from key players that have not yet been given a voice to tell the facts. These bearers of the truth are often forced to wait until the media hype has expired, and the backstory, which was in fact the only story, finally comes into vogue. When news and information comes with this much baggage, you can only hope for a measure of truth. Welcome back, Truth Seekers. You're listening to A Measure of Truth on blogtalkradio.com, and I'm your host, Michael Fordham. Look, if you just click the link on my webpage or you're listening on blogtalkradio.com or even the Blog Talk Radio player on my Facebook page and you want to call in live, look, we'd love to talk with you. So give us a call. The number is 347-326-9470. Or if you like, you can Twitter me your questions and comments at twitter.com slash a measure of truth. Also, if you haven't yet, why don't you look me up on Facebook? I'm the Michael Fordham with a photo of me in studio, and you can always email me your questions and comments at a measure of truth at gmail.com. Look, we've got a great show for you today. Tonight on A Measure of Truth, we speak with Robert L. Walsh, author of The Other America, The African American Experience. Now, Mr. Walsh is a retired Marine Corps colonel, and this book provides insight into the complex racial problems facing America. It discusses the impact of slavery and the civil rights movement on American culture and introduces the reader to a number of prominent African Americans whose contributions to American history are often overlooked. Robert Walsh, welcome to A Measure of Truth. Well, thank you very much, Michael. Well, thank you for taking time out to, to visit with us today. Now, you know, this is a question I've been waiting to ask you all week. Um, you know, I, I'm going to have you tell us a little bit more about yourself, but why is it you're so interested in the African-American experience? Well, uh, that's, a, that's, a, that, that's a question I'm often asked, uh, sometimes rather incredulously by my white counterparts, uh, colleagues, um, it was a it was a long journey. I started. I grew up in in a little town of Swanscott, Massachusetts, north of Boston, and predominantly white community. Had very little contact with African Americans. Uh, then went on to high school in Winchester, Mass, and then on to a prep school for a year out in Sheffield, Mass. Uh, and we'll get back to Sheffield because that has a. I uh, uh, just found out recently a very. Um, important aspect of uh, African-American history in Sheffield, Mass. Um, I went to a school there called Berkshire, and then I went to Colgate University, where we, where again, it was almost predominantly, it was all male, all white, except for one or two football players who were African-Americans. I then went in the Marine Corps, and uh, well, I might add that during during that, those formative years, I uh, I grew up accepting all the stereotypes uh, and myths about African Americans that were prevalent in the society in which mm-hmm. I was raised. Uh, and I went into the Marine Corps, and I spent 21 years in the Marine Corps, but it wasn't until I was in Vietnam uh, as a second-in-command of an infantry battalion, uh, I went down to assume those responsibilities uh, 
at the request of a friend of mine and found that that infantry battalion was rampant with racism. Uh, And it shocked me. It shocked me that uh, here we had African-American Marines uh, doing the same thing as all the rest of us, and yet their leaders in many cases were discriminating against them. Uh, That was a a real eye-opener, and I realized at that time that uh, there was no difference between me and uh, my African-American Marines that were in the unit with me. I'll give you an example. At the time when I was there, when I, my first wife was back in Vermont, uh, suffering from cancer, and uh, I had several African-American Marines in my unit whose wives were having similar difficulties or other type of difficulties, and we were all in a situation which was dangerous and scary, and uh, you know there was no. I realized there was no difference between me and them, mm-hmm. and it was quite an eye-opener. So. Uh, well, after I retired from the Marine Corps, I started teaching school, and by chance, just by happenstance, I was, a, I was assigned, uh, or I volunteered, actually, to teach African-American history at South Burlington High School in Vermont. Why? And, well, they had a course on the, on the books. It was a one-semester course, and... Uh, it had been instituted by a fellow who, oddly enough, was all, had also been in the Marine Corps and went into teaching, and then he left teaching and went into real estate. And it came time to teach this course, and it, it, I think the department chairman had forgotten that it was coming up to be taught. And no one in the, in the social studies department had had any contact with African Americans at all. Uh, and so the department chairman said, well, Bob, You've been in the Marines. What do you say? You, you, you obviously have been in contact with African Americans. Will you teach the course? And Did I they say it because of the fact that you've been in contact with African Americans, or they just thought you were tough enough to do the job? No, no, they just—I I don't really know why. I don't think I had nothing to do with being tough enough to do the job. It just—they needed somebody—they needed somebody to teach it, and it looked like I was the only guy available. And so. Um, I went home and I got that assignment just before Christmas. And over the uh, over the Christmas vacation, I read Lerone Bennett's book called *Before the Mayflower*. Mm. Terrific book. I don't know if you've read mm-hmm. it, but I started learning about Africa. I knew nothing about African American history, so I started making my lesson plans and things of that nature, and uh, went in and started teaching it. And what I found over the years is how little I knew. And uh, I learned more over the next 20 years about African-American history than I think my kids did, you know, my students. But, uh, and it was a wonderful experience. One of the things that was constant in the classroom, predominantly white, if I had five African-American students in that 20-year period, uh, that's probably a good estimate. But... um, what I, what I found was that the students in my classes, they were, my class was an elective for 11th and 12th grade students, and I had pretty good kids. And what I found was they would say to me, and they'd be angry about it, when, and they'd say to me, why haven't we learned anything about this in our regular history programs? And all of a sudden, they, their attitudes toward racial issues would begin to change and toward other issues in the school. Uh, social issues, uh, and you know, and I thought 
wow, that's that's really something. But at the time, I thought it was uh, perhaps not unusual because it was a particularly white school and all the students were from South Berlin to Vermont. But when I moved on to, uh, when I when retired from teaching at the high school, I went up to the University of Vermont and taught in their race and culture program for five years. And in those courses, again, predominantly white students, but students from all over the United States. And the surprising thing was that those kids were saying the same thing to me that my kids, my high school kids had said. Why haven't we ever learned anything about this African-American experience? Hmm. So based on that is why I got a hold of Leon Burrell, Dr. Burrell, uh, who is a professor, African-American professor at the University of Vermont. We, we've we been friends for all the time that I've been teaching. And uh, we decided to write that book, The Other America, The African-American Experience, designed for high school students. And uh, we actually we just thought we designed it for high school students. But when the reviews came out, we found it was good for middle school students and also for the general public. And it had a good reception. Hmm. I didn't become a millionaire on it, by, by the way. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, I don't know if that answers the question you asked, but that's how I got there. Now, as it stands now, is um, African-American history taught in Vermont schools? African-American history is taught in a few. Uh, South Berlin High School has taught it for, uh, oh, a good 30 years or more. Uh, a little school, a little school, high school down in Virgins, Vermont, which is south of South Berlin has been teaching it even longer than that, um, and probably I'd say maybe five or six other schools in the in the state, to my knowledge, are, are teaching having having some African American history uh, presented in their classrooms uh, as you know as a special course or, or doing something with it. But for the most part, no. Uh, normally, the U.S. history programs just present what has been presented in the normal textbooks, which isn't much. Hmm. Uh, tell us a little bit then about um, H640. Oh, H640? Uh, H640, is, and that number represents House House Bill 640, is one I asked to have introduced uh, to the House of Representatives. And that bill would require that for a teacher to obtain a license uh, for a teacher to attain, uh, let's say, a camp, somebody to obtain a teaching license in, in Vermont or to renew a teaching license in Vermont, they would have had to complete one three-credit course in African-American history. And I put that bill in in 2007 and again in 2009, and it has never gotten out of committee, out of the education committee. But that's not unusual. Bills take, you know, I understand the process on that, having been in the legislature. It takes time, but I was hoping it wouldn't take this long. Uh, the reason that I, I gave that, the reason I put that in is that, you we've had a lot of problems up here in Vermont. Well, I say we've had a lot of problems there. There was a study that came out by the Vermont Advisory Commission to the U.S. Committee Commission on uh, Civil Rights in February of 99, and then a follow-up study in 2004, the subject of which was racial harassment in Vermont's public schools. And those reports uh, 
recommended that teachers have instruction and education in issues surrounding racism. And my thought on that is that the place to start on that is uh, with an understanding of the African-American experience, or basically with an understanding of African-American history, which most white teachers, in most teachers in Vermont, whether they're white or black or Latino, have no or very limited knowledge on. And so if a teacher is confronted with a racial situation in the classroom, they really have no 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 fundamentals in which to fall back on other than to say that's inappropriate you shouldn't speak that way so you know, what what more should they have give us an idea of what you're looking at and when you're talking well, about what i'm talking about is if you had if if you have a if you get talking about affirmative action uh to understand affirmative action you have to understand that for what two, three hundred years, uh, African Americans by law were not allowed to read, or be taught to read or write, uh, and that legacy has has gone on for for, for years. I mean, the, the I'll say the the residue or the the um, the effects of of the slave experience has had a tremendous impact on African-American uh, economic development, uh, educational development uh, over the years. And, and if a person is saying, uh, some kid is saying, well, you know, the, why are they getting all these benefits? It's, it's not any benefits. You're trying to uh, equal, uh, equal the playing field. I think Lyndon Johnson gave the best example of that at Howard University when he introduced uh, the, uh, the concept of, uh, of affirmative action when he said that you don't take a, a man who's been in prison in chains and place him on a quarter-mile track, give him a pair of spikes and a track suit, and have him run against a world-class runner and consider that since they're running the same distance that it's a fair race. Mm. Does, now, that make a, does that make any sense to you? Oh, I'm African-American, so, yeah, duly <laughs> noted. Um, <laughs> but give us an idea of what the current racial climate is in Vermont. Well, I'd say the biggest, the, the biggest problem with the racial climate in Vermont is, is one of denial, which I mm -hmm. think is, a, is, one of, uh, is, a, is a problem in the United States, uh, that we don't have a, a racial problem. And yet, you can see, uh, you can hear epithets being said by kids in school to directed toward other students. Uh, you can, you can see, uh, comments directed at the president. Uh, you can see, or you hear, uh, we have, well, I'll give you a good example. I'll give you a couple of examples. We have a, a gal up here who's a lawyer, and she's in, I forget her name, I won't use her name, but she's a lawyer. And, it's a, and I, I write about her in the other book uh, that I wrote, the, the, you know, Through White Eyes. And this gal's a, a highly qualified lawyer, okay? Uh, she, was, she was unable to get a job 
in Vermont in any law office. She's currently uh, the attorney, assistant attorney for the city of Burlington. Uh, she was unable to get a job in, in a law office at all. Uh, I think she applied to 50-some-odd jobs. She had been a public defender and very successful. Uh, another another lawyer that I know had to leave the state. He was the only lawyer, in, in African-American, the only lawyer in Vermont who had both a law degree and an engineering degree, and he was unable to get a job. Hmm. He worked for the state for a while, uh, and he was a terrific guy, uh, but he's now out of state. Uh, and do you outline their experiences, meaning the, the efforts they made and directly how racism was a part of them not being able to find their work? Yes. Yeah. Mm. We, we discussed that. Uh, I'll give you an example of a, of a gal who lives in Burlington. Uh, she is in a wheelchair. She's a veteran of the Army. She was in the, she was in the Gulf War. However, her, her physical disability was not as a result of being in the Gulf War, but she She's, she's married, has a couple of kids, she's permanently in a wheelchair, and her husband is, she's African American and her husband is white. Uh, about three years ago, two years ago, uh, they needed to find a new apartment, and she was out driving in her, in her camper, in her van, and she saw a home for rent, which had a wheelchair accessible ramp up the front, up the, to the front door. And she walked, she got out of her van, wheeled herself up to the front door and said, when the guy answered the door, she says, I'll take it. I don't care what the rent is, uh, because she knew the area. It was a perfect place for her kids to go to school. It had the ramp. It had the, it had everything she needed. She says, I'll take it. He says, I'm sorry. I just rented it, uh, an hour ago. Mm. Uh, so she accepted that, went home and uh, didn't think much about it until about a week later. Uh, they're having dinner with another couple, and she she said by happenstance how disappointed she was. She wasn't able to get that house down on such and such a street. And the the other the husband of the other couple, they were both white, said, "What do you mean? There's a for rent sign out there right now. That place hasn't been rented. It hasn't been rented. We go by it every day." Hmm. So she sent her white husband over to see if he could rent the place. And sure enough, the guy greeted him with open arms and showed him the house and was more than willing to rent it to him. Wow. So he, they brought that down to the Vermont Human Rights Commission, and that's, uh, that was uh, educated. And, and, I mean, that's a true true incident within recent times. Was so she able to get the house? Pardon? Was she able to get the house thereafter? I don't know. Whether, I think that she... I th- I don't know what the outcome of that was. I think that she was so mad that she said she wouldn't go in that place if she, mm. you know, if, if the guy gave it to her. Uh, but I'm not sure. I'm not sure on that. Well, let's talk a little bit more about the book itself. Um, yeah. What is your goal for this book? To to bring to light what, as well as, I'm sure you want something to occur based on the information. Yeah. Well, yes. Uh, the what. We wrote, there was a reason we wrote the book. Okay. First of all, we wrote when the first, well, we wrote it because I said we just thought it would be a good idea. Then when this first report came out for the, uh, uh, from the Civil Rights Commission saying that teachers needed to be instructed in, in, in racism in African American history, we sent out a letter to every principal in the, in the state of Vermont 
offering them the book at cost and offering also to do uh, volunteer workshops. Uh, we got zero replies. Mm. The but that so we're disappointed on that. But the book we we, we went to the social studies uh, conventions and the book it was very interesting. When we go to a social studies convention convention or a uh, Vermont National Education Association convention, we found teachers wanting to buy it, and that's how we got into the schools hmm. because teachers would buy them for their for their for their own use. And surprisingly, we found that some of our uh, uh, most interested teachers were elementary school teachers who bought it for their own use so that they could educate themselves and then put it in their classrooms. What we'd like to do with this, what this book is designed to do, is not it's not designed to teach. It could be used for a one-semester course, but it's really designed to augment an existing U.S. history course take the existing textbook and have the teacher use the other America to augment his information, his or her information. They need to have the, like in Virgins, they have the class, they have the books writing class that the kids can read. Uh, in some other schools, the teacher uses it him, him or herself as a reference book. Uh, but the idea is, and I feel very strongly about this, is that we don't necessarily need to have or it may not even be desirable to have a separate African-American history course in the school systems. What is desirable to have is to have it completely integrated in the, into all aspects of the curriculum. For example, if you tell everybody, when, when you talk about uh, uh, putting it in African-American history, they immediately say, well, we should put it, we'll put it in the history program or in social studies. I'm saying no. Yeah, put it in that course. But also, why can't it be in the in the mathematics course? For example, a guy is talking to a, a mathematics teacher is talking to his, his class, and he may talk about Benjamin Franklin and his mathematical abilities. Why can't he talk about Benjamin Banneker, who had similar act? Uh, who did almost the same things that uh, Franklin did. I mean, they both put out a, a, an almanac. Uh, they both were mathematicians. I believe mm -hmm. there's a statue of Banneker in, uh, in Baltimore. Right. But if, if you, if you go to any Vermont school and ask a math teacher, hey, have you ever put, uh, talked about Benjamin Banneker? And they say, who's he? Okay. Mm -hmm. Well, if you put, if a teacher can do that, if a, if a teacher can take and talk about, uh, Garrett Morgan, you know the guy who invented the red light. And you have a lot of I have a lot of fun with that uh, because I'll tell, I'll ask people when I'm having a, giving a speech. I say, "How many of you guys drive cars?" And they'll all raise their hands, and I'll say, "How many of you ran a red light?" And of course, no one raises their hand. I say, "Tell the truth," and a few folks will say, "Well, we did." And I say, "Well, you can blame old uh, Garrett Morgan for that because he invented it." Well, who's Garrett Morgan? Well. He's an inventor in the same time frame as Thomas Edison, who had just as many patents as Edison did. The only difference was he's African-American. Why can't a science teacher know that? Right. Absolutely. Okay. So that's what I'm talking about. Mm -hmm. Okay. The, uh, the, the, these are the questions we asked when we were coming up in school as well, because we did learn about these things. But And then it depends on the school you went to, you would no longer hear about this information, and you would 
raise your hand as a student and try to share, and the teachers, again, had no reference point for the information that you were putting out there. I gave a speech at the Marine Base at Quantico, uh, and I was trying to get the uh, base to put the book in the, in the, in the, in the, out at the, what do they call the basic school, where they train officers in their, their basic military education. Most of these officers are going to be commanding uh, small units, which will have uh, a large number of African Americans in them. Most of the officers are white, but less than, uh, I'd say the Marine Corps at the time was about 12% African American, with no, and, but it was about less than 1% of the officers as African American. So these white officers should be aware of what's going on. And I asked them, I put up some names of famous Marines on the, on the, on the uh, blackboard, and they knew every one of them, but they didn't know this one general, who was a black general, who had commanded that basic Quantico just five years earlier. Now that's shocking, mm. you, know, you know. So, so I, I think that that I, the African American history needs to be incorporated in every aspect of the science. Uh, and, and what was his name again? You said he was a base commander. Here's, yeah, here's I'm trying to think. Peterson, Frank Peterson, his name was. Wow. was a major general or a lieutenant general. Mm. He was one of the first, uh, one of the most decorated uh, uh, marine pilots that we had. And, uh, <laughs> you know, and that, that was pretty, pretty grim. So at any rate, uh, you know, that's, that's, the purpose of the book was to augment or to see that, uh, to get African American history into the schools as a routine matter of course. Uh, and it's an easy way to do it is to have the teachers understand it and just, and as they talk in their classroom and they're given examples, and then they have the knowledge they use to give African Americans as examples of certain things as well as other people. But right now that doesn't happen. Okay. Well, let's, Robert, let's, let's look at this. In a perfect world, what would you like to see take place in Vermont if, if things were changed? Well, I'd like to see my bill pass because I think that that's the first place to start. And what would that accomplish? And this is what I mean. Once your bill is passed, once these teachers are required to take these courses, what do you see the impact being on students in general, not just African-American students, but the... Well, it's not, it's not, it's, I'm not even shooting for it to be necessarily on African-American students. In Vermont, 99, 95 or more percent of the students are white. Mm-hmm. Or, uh, but they're, gonna not, they're not all going to stay in Vermont. Okay, and so they need to have their education broadened. Mm-hmm. Now, what I think, what do I think the bill would do, is it would expose the teachers to the African American experience. And if if my experience is as any indicator of my experience, both as an as an individual and also as a teacher, I think that if we expose these young teachers to the African American experience, they're going to want to know more about it, and they're going to read more on their own. Mm-hmm. And it's going to take off, and and these and and they will be putting this stuff in this this history into their into their curriculum, and then people will look at African Americans not not and they will dispel the, the a lot of the stereotypes that you and I know have been prevalent over the years. 
because you talk about Mae Jameson, who's a astronaut, okay? Not just a waiter or a waitress or a singer. She's an astronaut. And but people don't know that. Well, there, there of course are two elements to racism, and the first is ignorance, but the other is hate. So is that a problem there as well in Vermont? Hate? Yeah. I Based don't think the so. racism. Okay. No, I don't. I don't think so. I don't think it's a problem at all in Vermont. I think most of it is. I, I can't say at all. You, you know, in every society, in every sort of situation, you're going to get these screwballs or these guys who, who are going to men or women who are going to be hateful, and and that's why we have hate crimes on hate hate crime laws on the books. But in general, I don't believe I believe that the, the population of Vermont is a very uh, uh, understanding and, and accepting group. Uh, uh, group of people who in many cases don't it's, it's more by omission than anything else that they that their problems on, on races because they just don't understand you know they say Vermont takes great pride in the fact that we had a very um, we had a very active underground railroad we take great pride in the fact that we were the first state to have outlawed slavery in, in our constitution uh, we take great pride in, in, in a number of areas of where we've been uh, in the lead in civil rights and all that sort of stuff. But we also have a, a history of, of where we've uh, had had our problems. For example, uh, one of the reverends or one of the ministers in uh, in, in Montpelier years ago was uh, an active member of the Anti-Colonization Society. You remember the one that won the group that wanted to send all the free blacks back to Africa right after mm-hmm. the Civil War. Mm-hmm. So, we, you know, we, we have these conflicted things. But, no, I don't think it's, it's a hateful thing. I think it's an education thing. I really believe that. Wow. And I'm, I'm pleased to say that the churches up here, uh, the Episcopal Church and the Unitarian Church and the Congregational Church, Historically, and have been very active in in, in uh, anti-racism programs and education programs, and continue to do so. So, where's your resistance coming from then in this referendum? Uh, well, one of the things that we run into on that is that uh, the, resi- the resistance is coming from several areas. One, the universities that provide the te- that. Uh, um, there are about 12 universities in Vermont that are authorized to conduct courses and, and award teaching certificates, teaching licenses. Those universities and colleges and universities would have to add to their curriculum an African American uh, African American history course, which they don't want to do, because they have to find somebody to teach it and it costs them some money. Uh, it, that's really a bogus thing because the students are going to be paying for it anyway you know so that's uh, another area is and it's a it's a funny thing and it talks i talk in my other uh my other book about diversity uh one of the problems i I went down to the um, vermont state board of education and i talked to them about this bill and i didn't get very far I went to the Vermont uh, Professional Educators Standards Board, which 
is made up primarily of teachers. They have the power. This particular board has the power to implement what I'm suggesting without legislation. The resistance that I got was, uh, and I hear it quite often, well, what about uh, women? They've been discriminated against. Uh, what about the handicap? Uh, we, we have to do something. What about the Native Americans? What about the uh, uh, Latino population? Are we going to have to teach this and all these uh, all these other programs? Uh, and so, pretty soon, when the conversation gets going that way, you, you lose its pro- it loses its focus. Uh, the my retort to that is, if we want, we, we can't solve all problems at all the problems at once. You, if you focus in on the one most basic problem that we have in this country, which is racism, which came out of which came out of slavery, and it was a deliberate thing. Uh, and if we understand that, then we can change attitude. That will change attitudes, which will then blossom out into other areas, and 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 it will. It, it's a long-term thing, but it will work. That's what I'm trying to accomplish. Hmm. Well. Um... I want you to go ahead and tell everyone where you can find your book. Uh, I know it's on Amazon. Uh, do you also have a website yourself as well? No, I don't. And, no, I, I don't have a website. It's just Amazon.com is where, where, where the book can be purchased. I see. And let's talk a little bit also about Through White Eyes. And um, tell us a little bit about what this book is about and what you hope to accomplish with this title okay. as well. Through Right Eyes is a book that we uh, remember. Let's go back and I I, I, uh, I talked about. Um, oh, by the way, let me just let me just stop for a second, if you don't mind, let me, and shift back. Remember, before we get into Through Right Eyes, we'll close the uh, thing about uh, discussion about the other America, or the history portion of it. Remember, mm-hmm. I said I went to school and at Berkshire School in uh, Sheffield, Mass right at the beginning of the show, and I said that had something to do with history. Well, I'm looking at a paper here from the Boston Globe, uh, August 24th, 2010, and it's talking about uh, a lady here by the name of Elizabeth Freeman, who in 1783, or actually in, in 1780, she went to court to get her freedom. And she used the all men are created equal uh, portion of the of the Constitution, or Declaration of Independence, as the basis of her of her argument. And in 1783, the state of Massachusetts' highest court freed her and made and agreed with her. Okay. Now I'm I grew up in Massachusetts, and I went to school right out near Sheffield in Sheffield for one year at least. Never heard of Elizabeth Freeman until I picked up the Boston Globe last week. Oh, that's, uh, I don't know, have you heard of her? Yeah, I believe I have. Yeah, um, okay. Well, you're ahead of me on that. Okay, well, on Through Right Eyes, you remember I talked about uh, two reports from the Vermont uh, Advisory Committee on uh, to the U.S. Commission on Civil Rights and uh, how they came out and they, they detailed... Uh, in, in great detail, 
some of the problems that uh, students of color were having in the, in, in the school systems here in Vermont. And the stories were pretty dramatic. After the first report came out in 99, uh, there was a movement actually to, you know, there was a great effort to try and create situations where the, where there would be better climate in the schools. And there were several bo- uh, bills that were introduced and a lot of hearings held. And I went to most of uh, many of the hearings. And then after the second, you know, and I listened to educators. I listened to legislators, all of whom I knew, because I'd serve with them, sit on these committees, and the people of color would come in and testify. And the general response was, you're exaggerating. This can't be happening in our schools. Hmm. We don't have a racial problem. Hmm. So I decided that I'd write the book, through white eyes, color and racism in Vermont. Right. Now, and, at the and, time that you were talking about, you were actually a member of the Vermont House of Representatives. And, no, uh, I, from, no, I wasn't a, I wasn't a member of the House. I just, I had already, I completed my six years in the House. But I, but I, oh. I had stayed in touch with them, with, mm-hmm. with the House, and I knew most of the people. You know, once you, we're a small state, once you're in the legislature, you know just about everybody who's in it or, Who's going to get in it? So, it, you know, when I walk into the state house, I know most everybody. Uh, and so it wasn't, so I, I was listening to this stuff, and it, it surprised me. Hmm. So I figured, and this may sound trite, but it's true. I, I sat down and I said to myself, if they won't listen to the people of color, maybe they'll listen to an old white guy who's had all the benefits of being of white privilege and who sees things differently and who is a, who is one of them, so to speak. Mm-hmm. So I wrote this book, and the book is only 120 pages long. Now, that was done deliberately. Hmm. I did that deliberately so that people would read it. You know, it was just a small little book. Then when I ran it off and I published it, and I gave it away primarily, I gave it to every almost every member of the legislature. I gave it to the governor. I gave it to the lieutenant governor. I gave it to the commissioner of education, to the state board of education, principals and schools, uh, teachers that I could see. I gave about 500 copies away. And the idea was to have to to hit them right between the eyes as to what what this is really all about. And uh, I can't say that it was... It's been well-received by many people, but I can't say it has accomplished its goal because the leadership has not responded the way I'd hoped. Now, so tell us what's in the book. What's the message? Well, the message is, uh, the basic message is, we talk about, we talk about racism in Vermont. I give some of the examples that I gave you beforehand mm-hmm. uh, about the gal and being denied uh, housing, about those, those examples from this book. Uh, the message is that it starts off with saying, one, the first chapter talks about how I happen to come to the conclusion that, that African-American history is important. We talk about my background, 
as you and I did at the beginning. We then, then we go through the book and we talk about color in Vermont. I talk a little bit about the history of people who have, of people of color who have lived in Vermont who have done, uh, good things. You know, William Anderson is a good example who was one of the, uh, I think he was the second person in the, Alexander Twilight was the first uh, graduate of Middlebury College who was the first member of the, black member of the Vermont legislature and I think Anderson was the second one. Uh, he's multilingual. He's a businessman, a farmer, well-respected, elected to the legislature. Went down to Montpelier and couldn't get a room in the hotel. Hmm. Okay, uh, and so we talk a little about the history of color, people of color in Vermont, and and then we talk about and then I talk about racism and different types of racism, the you know unintentional racism or blatant racism or covert racism. I give specific examples of of, of uh, racism in Vermont that has that has happened. Uh, and then from there we go on and we talk about diversity. In the fourth chapter I talk about diversity, which is, uh, and I come up with a, an expression that is not well received by some people, and it's called a diversity dodge. Uh, diversity ha- is a very important thing. It has its, has its place. But it, in my mind, and I'm only speaking from myself, in my mind, it's it, it, uh, it's been misused. I mean, diversity. We can talk about different people, the benefits of being with different people, and what have you. We can talk about understanding uh, foods and dance and music and all that stuff. But that doesn't really get to the nub of the matter of racism. Uh, and unfortunately. Here in Vermont, in my opinion, uh, people would rather talk about diversity because it's easier. You don't have to. If you talk about diversity, you don't have to admit that there's any racism. Um, that I've seen that time and time again when I when I when I when I talk or make presentations, that people would much prefer to talk about diversity than, than racism. And I equate it to, you remember in, in the history of our country, that during the slave periods, um, white northern businessmen, in dealing with southern businessmen, businessmen when they're, trying, or they're negotiating for costs and stuff, they wouldn't want to come right out and say, well, you can make your product cheaper because you have slaves. Or that might offend the southern businessmen. So what did we do? We said you can make your product your your product cheaper because you have that peculiar institution. It's a euphemism that was much more palatable, mm. and I and I think that that has transferred to diversity. Mm. That it's much more palatable to say we're all in favor of diversity, and by saying so, then we don't have to talk about racism. Uh, there are many people who disagree with me on that, but that's just how I believe on that. Hmm. So we talk about that, and then I go in to talk further about uh, the importance of African-American history to uh, understanding racism and then make my pitch for African-American history uh, being integrated into the schools. One of the the things that we talk about uh, in the book, I I refer to uh, 
in Beverly Tatum's book, uh, Why Are All the Kid Black Kids uh, Sitting Together in the Cafeteria? Um, and I, from my perspective, if you want to read a wonderful book with a definition of what racism is all about, that's the book to go to. And it's also a wonderful book to go to if you want to understand uh, affirmative action. Both she addresses those very well. Have you read that book? No. What is the name of it again? Yeah. Why are all the black kids sitting together in the cafeteria? That's a pretty long title. Yeah, it is. Dr. Beverly Tatum. It's a great book. Yeah, I highly recommend it. Okay, I'm just noting that right now. And um, what we're going to do is we'll take a quick break, and then we'll come back and close the show. Okay. And we'll, we'll be right back after this. Okay. Hi, I'm Michael Fordham, host of A Measure of Truth on blogtalkradio.com. I want to take a quick minute to talk to you about Young Lives DC 34. Young Lives is a unique, cutting-edge, nonprofit Christian organization designed to empower and equip pregnant and parenting teen moms to become productive citizens in the community. A program that partners teens and mature Christian women to provide teen girls in crisis with timely encouragement, guidance, and ongoing support. Through the power of presence, kids and teens' lives are dramatically impacted when caring adults come alongside them, sharing God's love. Because someone believes in them, they begin to see that their lives have great worth, meaning, and purpose. This is just the first step in a lifelong journey. The choices they make today, based on God's love for them, will impact their future decisions, the careers they choose, the marriages they form, and the families they raise. And all of this can be traced back to the time when a young life leader reached out and entered their world. For more information or to get involved, check out their webpage at www.younglives.younglife.org. Or if you're in the D.C. metropolitan area, call 202-399-7017. Welcome back, Truth Seekers. You're listening to A Measure of Truth on blogtalkradio.com, and we're talking with Robert Walsh. And Robert, um, tell us a little bit, too, about your nonprofit. Um, we didn't really talk about that in detail. Yeah, it, it's interesting. That during, the, during the break, I said to myself, I can I tell Mike, ask Mike if we can talk about that. <laughs> <laughs> but I've got, you know, is that, I, I don't believe it's enough to just sit around and say we should do this or we should do that. And uh, well, So what I did was I set up a non-profit organization called the Vermont African American History Project Incorporated. And the purpose of that organization is to promote and encourage the teaching of African American history in schools. And to do that, uh, and anyway, I have a number of, uh, I think you have a copy of, of the mission statement. There are a number of uh, specific things, one of which is to do, you know, push for legislation. But the basic thing that we're trying to accomplish with this African American history project is to encourage teachers to take courses in African American history. Now, if I, and I've been out trying to recruit teachers to do just that. Now, it's, there's no, no colleges here in the university, in, in, well, the University of Vermont has one African American history course, but it's only taught at noontime. So it's pretty hard for teachers to take that. Hmm. So, uh, what I've done is, I've made an arrangement with Howard University. Dr. Elizabeth 
Clark Lewis has been most helpful. She's I've sent her copies of, of The Other America and with her other materials that she has. She's designed an online course wow. that teachers can take here in Vermont, uh, sitting in their living room, and get three credit course from Howard University, and I'll pay for it. Really? You know, that's the idea that the 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 Vermont African American History Project will pay for the course uh, if the teacher will take it. Mm-hmm. And uh, there are some restrictions on it. I mean, there has to be a person who is a teacher and actively teaching in school, and so they get a better rate at uh, you know a better course cost from Howard University because they are active teachers. But it's uh, it's run into some problems. One. I haven't had too many teachers take me up on it. No, quite honestly, I'm, I'm sorry to say I think it's only three, two or three, have completed the course. Each one has to finish it, loved it. Uh, mm. Dr. Lewis does a tremendous job. There are some problems that I run into. One, of course, teachers have to have um, continuing education courses to re- get recertified, so in their licensure and what have you. And there's some... So there are some schools who, I mean, if a math teacher wanted to take um, a course in African American history, wouldn't allow him, uh, so, you know, wouldn't allow that to uh, be used as portion for their recertification. They say you have to take a math course, that type of thinking. So I'm trying to work on that to get that taken care of so that we can get more students, more teachers to do this. Uh, so that's the idea behind the thing. It's still in its embryo, although I've been trying to do it for three or four years, I'd have to say it's still in its embryo stage because we haven't been very successful. Uh, we've, we've been able to raise some money, and uh, but we haven't been able to get a number of teachers to take it, at least the numbers that I was hoping to. So uh, we're still working on that, but that's the idea behind this thing. Okay. Well, very good. Well, you know, I applaud your efforts. Um, you know, you got a difficult task ahead of you, and um, hopefully through your foundation you guys can, you know, get some traction on this, especially with the help of um, Dr. Elizabeth Clark Lewis. So um, we look forward to just hearing how things progress with this. And um, uh, we just will want to thank you for taking your time out to speak with us and want everybody to, to take the time out to um, – Grab that book. Is it available in the libraries as well? Uh, yes, it is. Okay, awesome. And and that's a that's a, a big there deal. Are a number, there are a number of libraries across the country that have, have, have purchased that book and have it in there. So I don't know the exact numbers, but I was very pleased to see that we had a run on that for a while. Oh, that's fantastic. And, um, well, we hope to hear from you again and again. Thank you very much okay, for taking time friend. out. And um, as this subject, you know, peaks its ugly head up again and again, I'd like to invite you back on, and maybe we can have you on one of our panel discussions and still update exactly what your progress is and in your initiative as well. Well, I appreciate that, and I thank you for inviting me to, to talk tonight. I've, I've enjoyed it very much, and I've enjoyed talking to you. All right, then. Well, thank you very much again. Well, special thanks to our producer, Donna Hardiman, who helped put all this together. I am Michael Fordham, and you've been listening to A Measure of Truth. 
But before you go, here's a little something to take with you. Ask God for wisdom daily, but know that your lesson can come from anybody or any situation, good or bad, friend or foe. Watch your thoughts. They become words. And watch your words. They become actions. And watch your actions. They become habits. And watch your habits. They become your character. And watch your character. It becomes your destiny. Until we meet again, take care of what becomes of you.